aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Hey, Shaka Khan, and welcome to the 20th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novel to romance to comics to whatever enters my head. And today's guest is Jack McCallum, my former Sports Illustrated colleague and one of the all-time great basketball writers. Jack is the author of a new book, Golden Days, that weaves in the 1971-72 Lakers with the modern-day Golden State Warriors. He's written a bunch of other books, including the blockbuster Dream Team on the 92 Men's Olympic Basketball Squad. Today we're going to dig into covering hoops, how to write breezily, and that's a bigger skill than many of you would think, and whether Michael Jordan should have actually bagged it. All right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. First of all, thank you for doing this very much. And, and um, I want you to know, I have two of your books in front of me right now. I have your new book, Golden Days. And I also have a little book, and, and I'm confused why this does not appear on your website. A little book called Shack Attack. Yes. And I, I don't know if you, uh, well, you probably remember this. First time I ever talked to you, I was a writer for the Tennessean. And I was doing a story about sports books. And I remember the, I remember this story. I, of course I, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I called to ask you how much of the book Shaq wrote and how much of the book you wrote. And you laughed at me. <laughs> and that was, I remember. Thing. Yeah. I remember that specifically. And I said, what are you talking about? I wrote all of it. <laughs> you know, I did run it and, and you subsequently found out, uh, although I don't think you've ever done a, as told to, you do mostly third person right. bios. But the important thing is to get, you know, the subject involved. I mean, to make sure the subject reads the language and, you know, all the all the information comes from the subject. You interview, interview, tape, 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 you know. But it's it's an as you have found out, undoubtedly, Jeff, it's an arduous task writing a book. Yeah. And it's, it's just not, you know, a bad book, a mediocre book, or whatever kind of book isn't easy. So to ask an athlete to do it, I mean, there's been cases, you know, Bill Bradley wrote his book, but then again, he ran for president. So, right. you know, right. it's a whole different thing. But I remember that conversation with the young Jeff Perlman. Wait, so basically ghostwriting a book means you shove a tape recorder in front of a guy, get as much stuff as you can from him, and then try writing in his voice? Is that the basic approach? Yeah, but but it. I mean, it goes kind of beyond that. I'm not suggesting it's, uh, you know, to use the cliche, you know, brain surgery or rocket science. I mean, you do do the research. I mean, you're the one usually that has to come up with what you want to talk about. I mean, you know, you have to. You're responsible for plumbing the uh, the subject's memory. You don't go, okay, the first game was against the uh, Knicks. What do you remember? You got to say. You know, the first game you had 27 and 13 and you and Patrick Ewing got into a little tussle in the first period. You know, you have to you have to do the responses because not everybody's memory about their own uh, life is, you know, a mine certainly wouldn't be. So you're doing research and then you're doing taping and then you're converting it into their language. Then you're showing them and reconverting it after they say, hey, man, I didn't sound like that or let's change that or that's wrong. Right, right. Why? Well, I, uh, I I just remember being shocked. I must have been the most naive human being of all time because I remember being shocked that author, uh, athletes did these books, but they really had almost no. You know, there there was no typewriter. There's no shack with a pen pondering. You know, life's literary uh, meaning. It was just uh, Jack McCallum in the shadows writing the book. <laughs> There's no Santa Claus. I've learned. Um, so uh, you know, I. Uh, I was, uh, I was reading Golden Days, and I, I have to say, uh, in, a, in a cliche, I'm about halfway through. And uh, I'm fascinated um, by many things when it comes to writing a book. And the, the, the one that, that I, I really am interested in here is, is you're weaving it's, – it's you're taking two completely and totally different teams from different eras and weaving them into sort of one book. And that seems really, really hard to me. Like – Writing is hard, researching is hard, all that stuff is hard. 
But taking two subjects that are, you know, from completely different eras and weaving them into something seems almost mind jarringly difficult to me. Um, am I exaggeratingly difficult? Well, that? Uh, my first idea, my idea that didn't come to me right away. I wanted to write, I was listening to a Doors album, believe it or not, and LA Woman, uh, you know, we were doing this email exchange about groups that we didn't like, but we kind of liked one song. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was LA Woman, I think it's just one of the great, great songs, evocative of the, uh, you know, early 70s. And I was, that was my suggestion. And I said, hey, what, uh, what year did that come out? And it came out in 71. Mm-hmm. which was the year I began journalism. And then I began, re- you know how you waste time on the internet. You, I began researching uh, other things that were going on then. And sports-wide, it was the year I began working. I graduated from college. And one of the things going on in the sports world was the Lakers' 33-game uh, winning streak, which just boggled my mind right. that somebody, that a team won 33 straight games at a point when they were traveling commercial you know, getting up and taking a plane at going to Chicago, playing that night, getting in the plane the next day. I mean, it is mind boggling to me. And it had Jerry West it had Wilt Chamberlain, had Elgin Baylor, three of the great players of all time and interesting personalities. So I, my idea was to do a book about that and wrote a proposal. And the publisher said, well, at the same time, the Warriors were on their on their long winning streak the two, 2015 16 season mm-hmm. so it was the publisher's idea kind of hey maybe we could make it also more modern and bring in this other team and i said well we were even luckier than we thought because jerry west was uh you know was an advisor a member of the ownership council and a trusted kind of uh you know member of the hierarchy at that time so i can link these two eras together and kind of use Jerry West as the prism. Uh, so that's kind of how it came about. And do you, how do you, so what's your first step here? Do you, do you reach out to Jerry West early? Um, and do you have to convince him this is a project worth doing? Do you have a long relationship with him? Like, how do you go about it? Well, yeah, that was the first one here. I mean, I have a long relationship with Jerry, but it's not like, I, you know, I knew him back in the eighties. I mean, used to interview him, but it's not like we, you know, I call, hey, Jerry, it's Jack. You know, that doesn't work that way. And in the beginning, I didn't know if it was going to work. I mean, I didn't know whether it was a long, you know, what we used to call at Sports Illustrated, a bonus piece. Right. I didn't know whether it was that. This is way back before I, uh, you know, before I added on the Warriors component. I didn't know whether it was a book or a long story. So I arranged an interview with Jerry West. I remember it was Mother's Day on 2015, mm-hmm. Mother's Day of 15. And it was so fascinating just hearing him talk. I mean, I started to explain it to Jerry, but he just kind of starts talking. To this day, I'm not sure that he knows <laughs> after, you know, several interviews with him and this entire book, I'm not sure. I would always start to explain to him what my idea was, and we'd just start to sort of start talking about stuff. So after I got done with Jerry, I you know had all this fascinating stuff. I finally got to Elgin Baylor, who was a little reluctant to talk, uh, but I finally got him. Why was he reluctant? Well, I mean, I think Elgin maybe it was more <clears throat> it was more his uh, wife a little bit. His his wife is kind of the the caretaker of the Elgin legend, and she is pissed off, rightly so, about any number of things, one of them being that his relationship with the Lakers, uh, you know, is not very good of what it should be. Mm-hmm. They started building all these statues. The first damn statue they should have built was Elgin Baylor. Right. You know, he made the team when they went to L.A., and for whatever variety of reasons, uh that has not happened, does not like, look like it will happen. So, you know, this general disorientation from the league, I mean, he was Sterling, Donald Sterling's general manager and failed in his lawsuit against the abhorrent Donald Sterling. Right. Uh, so I just think a general feeling of bitterness, although let me say, when I talked to Elgin finally, he's, he doesn't seem bitter. I yeah. mean, he, and maybe that's part of Elgin's personality. He, we had a great conversation. So after I had West in the bank for two hours and 
two hours of Elgin Baylor, I said, man, I really like this uh, Lakers idea. Um, but then the Warriors came into it. They got Kevin Durant. They, they lost the championship, but they got Kevin Durant. So by definition, they became this incredibly interesting team, you know. So therefore, I kind of had both sides of it and began researching, kind of gone on and off between talk to some old Lakers, go get some new Warriors. Talk to some old Lakers, get some new Warriors. Always looking for the, you know, the kind of similarities between them without, without pounding that over the head when the, when the similarities weren't there because the contrasts are as stark as the similarities are. Do you, do you find it hard? So I recently, um, I recently did a story for a Bleacher Report about Sam Darnold, the USC quarterback, and I sort of sat in the room and thought, I have nothing in common with this guy, and I don't really feel like I have that much to say to him because of the age gap between me and the college you know, sophomore. Um, the guys you wrote about for the Lakers, you know, they're, they're sort of contemporaries or a little older. The guys you wrote about for the, for the Warriors are, you know, in their twenties. Do you, do you, did you find it hard or do you find it hard to sort of relate interview, get on the level of a guy who's Steph Curry's 27 years old or whatever he is. Is that tough at all? Yeah, of course, of course you do. And you be get more, begin more conscious of this. I think I started to feel it when I, I remember interviewing, uh, when LeBron first came into the league, it was uh, whatever year that was, and I was assigned to do the, the preview story. And I'm talking to LeBron, and I'm, you know, it, it used to be one thing when I was talking to Michael Magic Larry, who knew me, and I were only I was only a little bit older than them. I mm-hmm. mean, I was. You've always been. I was almost always older than everybody when I. I mean, I got to SI when I was thirty or thirty-one. You were probably a little younger, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah I was but, twenty-five, I think, or twenty-six. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, most of the time, uh, most of the time, I was older than people. Not always, and you weren't always older than the coaches. You know, you you that was that was your sort of your a lot of times why the traditional male white sports writer, you know, whatever disadvantages he had. With the young black athlete, he they were probably counterbalanced by the advantages he had talking to the white, you know, authority figures, the owners, the general managers, and the coaches. Right. That's kind of a different question. What you're saying, but I think if you know, I mean, for me, uh, when I interviewed Curry and Durant and the other guys on the team, um, first of all, you got to know your stuff, and and secondly. I always sort of did throw around, you know, I'm still on the Sports Illustrated uh, masthead. Um, Ray, Ray, Raymond Ritter, the, the Golden State Warriors PR guy, would introduce me as a Sports Illustrated guy. Kevin Durant, I covered a little bit. He remembered a story I did because I did the first story on Kevin mm-hmm. for Sports Illustrated. So the answer to the question is, yes, you do feel it, certainly. You know, you're now 50 years older. I am yeah. than some of the people. So weird. But I think there's ways around it. If you can, if you know what you're talking about, uh, you can do it. Even if you're thinking the guy might be thinking, God damn, this guy is old. Right. You know? Right. But it's, it kind of plugs into Jerry West because Jerry is going on 80. And one of the things I wrote about in the book was interesting to me, how Jerry still relates. And he does. It's not a fake. Jerry still relates to it because of the fact that he can impart his knowledge, that he knows things that they don't know. And he is able to do it without a kind of, hey, look how we did it in my day. You know, he doesn't he doesn't do that like a lot of other athletes do. I really admire that about him. And that's largely why he's been able to stay relevant, I think. You know, it's interesting. I recently had an editor say to me, I won't name the editor or the place. Um, that he was going with younger writers because they could go into a locker room and talk to the players. And this guy was talking to me. I'm 45 years old. And I, I, I hate that. Like, I feel like, I feel like you could go into a locker room, um, whatever, in your late 60s, me in my mid-40s. I feel like if you know your stuff and you know the topic and you know how to interview people, you know, and you have those tools – it's a lot more valuable than a 22 year old who can drop a Drake uh, lyric every now and then. I don't know. I don't know. But, but do you think there is something to be said for the sort of contemporary element of being, being able to interview someone just based on contemporary, you know, time period? 
I guess initially, I mean, I don't know if I put myself in the uh, shoes of a, of a black athlete, I'm 25 years old. Mm -hmm. Maybe I've had experiences anyway that haven't been completely, you know, copacetic with white authority figures. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. And then Jack McCallum heads towards you. Right. You know, instead of Mark Spears heading toward you. Is there a moment when Mark Spears would have an advantage? I'm just throwing out Mark Spears. There's John Abrams. There's hundreds. There's Jay Adandi. There's hundreds. Right. Would there be a moment when they feel uh, more comfortable than me coming? I suppose that's possible. Just as like an owner or an older coach might feel uh more comfortable if I was heading toward them. I just think you overcome that pretty quickly, along with the fact that I really do believe the NBA for just the longest time has been better at kind of fostering a sort of equality between races and ages and genders that other, well, there's only two genders. Right. <laughs> well, actually, probably not. Now. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> has done a better job. Traditionally, there's a history of that that exists that I think you go through it less. That's just my guess. Right. You know, but I've never felt, I've never felt I couldn't talk to young black athletes, but I couldn't say for a moment, there isn't a moment when I'm coming toward them and the older I look, <laughs> right. the more they might want to talk to someone who looks more like them. But you know what? Honestly, I think they overcome it in 30, 30 seconds. And, and the other thing that happens is that not that I would ever do this during an interview, but like I'm the guy that covered Jordan. I'm the guy that covered magic. I'm the guy that covered bird. And in some level, guys like Curry and Durant, I'm just picking them out mm -hmm. for two. They know that, you know, they know sort of where I came from. Like Bob Ryan shows up. I mean, Bob Ryan, you know, is older than I am with grayer hair. But they know who Bob they know who Bob Ryan is. They know that he, you know, is a Hall of Fame writer who, you know, went back with Bob Cousy. And in some sense, I think they accept that. That's what I believe anyway. Could be could be too rosy of an opinion, but I do believe that. No, I think I agree with you. I, I really do. Um you uh you have one of the most unique writing styles. When I when I was reading your book, there's a there's a passage here. I'm just gonna read it real quick. You wrote uh, Tougher Than a Cossack and Blessed with Natural Talent. Uh, West was hip. West was cool. West was even in a strange way Hollywood. His size, a legit six three with a massive wingspan, surprised people when they met him. He had a kind of uh, uh, countrified, uh, raw bone strength about him. He didn't have movie star good looks, but rather the face of a hard extra, someone who tumbled downstairs, dusted himself off, and went back looking for more. So uh, I've always thought, and I, I know you feel the same way. Like when we were at SI. Um, you could, there were certain people you could recognize just by their writing. Like you wouldn't need to see the byline of Steve Russian or Rick Riley or Bill Knack. And you knew they wrote that story. And I always felt you had a, I, I thought immediately recognizable because you had this real casual way of writing. And I, that's a, and which I've envied for years, like this breezy, you know, almost like I'm taking a walk and here's what I see. And this is kind of how it is. And you know, the Lakers are going to be good this year because, and, it just came off as real casual and real breezy. Um, is that is that something you you work on and develop? Is it just kind of who you are? Have you been the same writer more or less since you were coming up through the ranks? I I never did think I had one of those uh, styles. I I agree with you. You know, you always knew Riles. I mean, there were certain things. There were certain things as a writer you could do good, and uh, you could do well. Excuse me. And no matter how much I tried. You know, Rick would, uh, <laughs> Riley would come up with things. There's certain things you can't do. I think, I think maybe the key is recognizing your weaknesses. Rick and Dan Jenkins and that those guys were always good at the at metaphors. You know, I dropped, I I dropped that quicker than third period French. You know, right, I mean, right. that, I, that wasn't my thing. I liked, I, you know, I thought that I was good when I could get make a description and not just kind of just kind of play it out a little bit. I remember thinking that uh, when I was looking at Jerry West right away and thinking, and we were talking about LA, you know, we were in, we were in LA, LA's part of a character, the story. Well, he doesn't look like a leading man. You know, he looks like somebody that, uh, 
looks like somebody that, you know, is a stunt man. You know, he looks more like a stunt man. So I knew that somewhere in there I had to kind of uh, I, I had to kind of get that in. And I don't think it's something that I really uh, that I really think about. And I, I would you know, I'm pleased that you think I would have a distinctive style, but I never thought I had one of those like Russian was wordplay. You know, Riles was, uh, you know, uh, Riles was the, the metaphors that strung together, you know, quickly. Gary Smith was burrowing inside of someone with a right. kind of second person self-examination. But uh, I don't know. I just never thought I uh, I never thought I had that. I can tell you this. It doesn't come out right away. you got to come back. you got to go back. I write pretty fast, I would say, and I get. I get a lot of stuff down quickly, probably before most writers do. But then I go back an awful, awful, awful lot. I'm not one of those guys that polishes page one before I go on to page two. Page one might be a mess. And I might get from page one to page 15 quicker than anybody. But I'm going back a lot to see <laughs> to see what's in there. So it does take some work. Do you like writing? Like, do you enjoy the process of actually writing? I do. And, you know, when I talk to my classes or make a talk, I, I, I always say that, uh, you know, there's two, as you know, you know, you, when you were at SI or you're researching books, I mean, there are two really distinct processes and there's not, it's almost like, I know you hate golf, but it's almost like putting and driving. The right. two have nothing to do with it. I mean, the strokes are completely different. Reporting to me has always been, not arduous, but it's the thing to me that's the hardest. I mean, once I get to the people, it's it's easy. You know, I think I'm a pretty good interviewer. And but you know, you got to get them in the right. You got to get you got to get a hold of them. You got to get enough time. You got to get them in the right place. You got to get them in the right mood. You got to get them without distractions. Those kind of variables, they always change. I mean, I could be talking to Jerry West. We're going along good in a hotel, and all of a sudden, nine people come in and, and interrupt us. Right. You know, because they see him. Now the train of thought is going. Or an athlete in a locker room, as you know, always the worst place to get him. So trying to get an athlete, trying to get your subject to talk in a place where he or she can talk comfortably, that never that never gets easier. That always is a variable. But writing, once you get the information, you know, writing isn't as much of a variable. I mean, I can go down to my little place at the Jersey Shore and close myself up and and do it and i'm not saying it comes easy because that would be stupid but <laughs> it it probably comes i probably am a little blessed with maybe it becoming a little bit uh easier and i i do think you know i have gotten that's just as good as i got older you, you start to worry about you know losing your fastball when you get to my age simply because people are asking you about it right <laughs> you know but i don't i don't think that's uh, i don't think that's happened yet i hope it hasn't you um i always thought you were really 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 strong at this is kind of from afar um at engaging with people as far as you never seen i i could be totally off on this you never seemed intimidated by athletes you never seemed nervous about going up to a barkley or a jordan or a magic or a bird whereas when i was covering baseball at si I always felt like I had a lot of tiptoe in me. Like I would enter a locker room and there would be some tiptoeing, like nervousness, walking up quiet. I don't know. I, I always, am I wrong here? I always felt like you just had a real sense well, I of think, self. I think partly, uh, I think partly it was the sport, Jeff. I mean, I remember the few times I did baseball. Um, it's a different vibe. <laughs> yeah. It's, it is a different, I, a part of what you say is true and I'll address it, but, part of it is is baseball or you know i just found hard the times i had to do it i mean obviously tommy verducci hasn't and tim kirchin hasn't because right. they've worked on it but i'm i'm just wondering if they i remember when steve wolf uh who was a great baseball writer steve went over to to do some and he that's how he made his bones and i guess probably that's still his sport i remember him transferring over to well, not transferring, but he did a couple bonus pieces on basketball mm -hmm. one time. And I remember him calling me and going, 
this is unbelievable. <laughs> this is this is like another world. Like, yeah, come on in. Yeah, I'll talk to you. Right. <laughs> no, sure. Right. So I think the sport doesn't mean there's not pricks in basketball. Doesn't mean there's not great guys in baseball. And maybe that's even changed uh, a little bit. Maybe there's more now. But I think that's number one that it has it has you know grown up. Uh, that basketball just developed with more of a media-friendly thing. The other thing is I always thought the gap between uh, journalist and subject was more pronounced as uh, with age rather than fame. When I was 21 or 22, I was assigned to go up and interview the Lehigh football coach, which was a guy named Fred Dunlap. I'm 21 years old. I'm going up to interview the Lehigh football coach, this was like an older boy going to talk to the Pope. Right. I mean, that's what I remember feeling. And when I got to SI, I was 30, 31. I was 31. And when I got the NBA beat, I was 35. Well, you know, by that time, you're a, a little bit older. And certainly part of it is just pretending you feel more comfortable than you do. I was pretty good at, I was pretty good at feeling comfortable once I got there. Or, or or pretending that I did. You know, I was I was pretty good at that. But I was a little bit older than you when I was doing this. So I think that's a factor. Did you not find the locker room an intimidating place? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I... Inti- yes. In, more intimidating because, as you know, at SI, um, you know, what you were always supposed to do back in the heyday was your whole thing was to get something nobody else got. Right. And you couldn't do that in the locker room. I mean, I remember when I first got to SI, I, I did a lot of college football. And I remember just hours and hours just waiting out. So I would find out who the subject's parents were because the kid would come out and talk to them afterward, you know. Yeah. And I would, I, I would just go wait with the parents, introduce myself, ingratiate myself. You know, well, is Herschel coming out to say? <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then only getting those two minutes, you know, when he hugged mom or something like that. But for this book, it's funny that I I rarely went. I mean, I did for the finals, but, you know, I went to a lot of Golden State Warrior games and the stuff before the game, uh, watching them warm up, the little interplays of the teammates, the things Steve Kerr would talk about, that was much more to me, much more important to me than well, there were times I didn't even go in the locker room afterward. Right. Because what do I care about what somebody said about a December game? Things have happened in locker room that have blossomed into stories. You know, once, you know, you can get some stuff in there. But by and large, the locker room was a, was never a sports writer's favorite place to visit, I don't think. Right. Well, when you were working on this book, like, is it? Is it possible in this era of just uber coverage of everything um, that you would be able to get something from Steph Curry that nobody else has? The only thing I could get from him, it wouldn't be something from his private life. The only thing I really wanted, I was, you know, in, in one way, this is the most broad Steph Curry subject, shooting. But the only thing you can do is pick out a certain subject you want to talk about and just try to microscope the crap out of it. And I remember asking him when's the first time he took one of these long shots. And I just, not, not that this is a great revelation, but Steph started telling me about this game in college when he all of a sudden came down and just said, what the hell? And he threw one up. There was a set play that he was supposed to run at Davidson and he just threw one up and it went in. And it was sort of like, I thought, that's almost the only kind of nuggets you can <laughs> right. you can get these days. I mean, I spent, you know, the bar, unfortunately, for me, was set, you know, when I did the Phoenix Suns book, Seven Seconds or Less. I mean, they basically, they opened up the locker room. Right. I mean, they, I mean, it was like I was on the team. And I will never, and so I measure every experience against that. And frankly, came up, you know, come up lacking <laughs> because I will never get that again. I mean, obviously, the Warriors, I ask about it, but they're not they're not opening up the right. locker room to anybody anymore. I don't know whether anybody will ever do that. If you do, 
if you if you get that opportunity and you can't write a good book, uh, honestly, you you shouldn't be in <laughs> you Why shouldn't be in the you? business. Why did the Suns give you that access? You know, it was just this weird set of circumstances. Um, Julie Fi, the public relations director, one of the best in the business. Uh, Julie kind of trusted me. I had known her for a lot of years. It was it was at a time when Dan Tony's team was just taken off. They were becoming the darlings of the NBA, and I think they felt a little bit, hey, you know, we're not quite getting this uh, notice. Maybe this might be fun. They weren't jaded. They weren't in a city like New York. You went to a son's practice, and there was a normal number of people there. They had two newspapers. That's it. It was a little bit before social media went insane. You know, there weren't there weren't 27 websites there. Right. So it was the perfect it was a perfect time for a team that people really liked was a premier team uh, with premier players, but yet did not uh, did not come across as a premier. It just didn't have the follow the media following of a premier team of a New York, of a Los Angeles, even of a Chicago. The other thing that was going on was there was just an unusual batch of assistant coaches there. Never, no, never mind Mike D'Antoni, one of the great guys. Alvin Gentry, number one or two on anybody's great guy list. Right. Mark Ivoroni, Phil Webb brother, Dan D'Antoni, who was coming into the league new. It was just this perfect match of, you know, the cliche, a perfect storm of coaches, team, and time in the NBA, and I was lucky to have plugged into that. Now, let's say you're doing that book, and um, I don't know, you find out that Amari Stoudemire has a hooker in his room every night. I'm just being hypothetical here. Like, do you, you have their trust, the PR person sort of trusts you. Are there things you have to ignore, or are there, you know, are... Are, it does, there, do there, are there conditions that come with the idea that we are going to give you this access? They didn't. It was funny. They weren't really spelled out with the uh, – I had told them. I can't remember whether I told the – I mean, if I told somebody, maybe I told Steve Nash. I, I said this is supposed to be a book about how a team operates basketball-wise. And I just wasn't comfortable. First of all, I wasn't comfortable, number one. Number two, my age, you know, at that point, it was 10 years, you know, I'm 56, 57. I didn't want to be trailing. I didn't want to be having beers with Raja Bell. You know, right. that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the film sessions with the coach. I wanted the coaches. I wanted to hear about uh, what was, you know, I wanted to hear about what they were saying to, to game plan. Mm -hmm. That was sort of the premise of the book. There were about six or seven or eight times during the season where Dan Tony would just say to me, there were a lot of times I wrote something that he didn't like, but you know, him and Roger Bell had a fight and, uh, and this isn't it's getting away from your question. So Nothing. the answer to your question more was the more uh, salacious things that you would undoubtedly find out about a team. Number one, I didn't explore them to find out. And number two, I probably wouldn't have written them anyway, unless they sort of begun to, impact uh impact the team but mike would just reach certain points when he'd look at me he goes jokingly with a smile on his face if you write that i'll kill you like so, so he had a fight with Raja bell did you you did use it yeah i did i was at halftime and it was a kind of a <laughs> like a fascinating fight they were hollering at each other you know right actually it might have been after the game i don't but i'm sitting there with my sticking my tape recorder out <laughs> And some th a lot of things with Sean Marion, I know in, in retrospect, Mike wished I hadn't written. But of the salacious, you know, sleeping with prostitutes type of thing, staying out late, uh, I just kind of stayed away from it. I just felt that I, you know, I wasn't the one, I wasn't the one to do that book. It just, it didn't feel to me. And, and um, it, it just turned out as a really, really, really inside basketball type of book. Right, right. Um, you spent almost 30 years at SI. I only spent, I think, six years at SI. Uh, the magazine recently announced that next year, I think it's going 27 issues. Um, it's thinner than it's ever been. Print clearly is not on the rise. Uh, 
I guess it's like a broad lane question. How does it, how do you feel about this all? Cause it kind of breaks my heart, but maybe you, maybe you see things differently. Well, selfish, selfishly, number one, the first thing I think, and this is totally selfish was you get very few advantages of being, uh, you know, in your upper sixties, you know, health wise, mm-hmm. you know, the way your knees feel and all that crap. But one of the things that I, <laughs> that I can be thankful of as can Bill Mack, you know, as can uh, Curry Kirkpatrick, probably Frank DeFord, who bless his heart, has passed on, um, is that we came along at the right time. I mean, I was at SI when it was not one of the great, but when it was one of the great magazines of the world. Right. I mean, it was it was a, you know, it was a boon for uh advertisers it was a boon for subscribers it was a boon for journalism the the uh you know swimsuit issue notwithstanding and that kind of almost stamped it its own little identity you know for better or for worse so that's the first thing i think of as luck number two i probably think of as you do it's a little bit sad but i will i will say this and i really mean this and i talk to young people about this all the time i was talking to somebody about it yesterday it's it's just peculiar that it gets smaller and not as many people reads it read it but the brand is still so strong when they do something it still kind of means something and this really hit me when i was doing the warriors book um when i do you know the warriors part of this book whenever and i'm just not saying this cuz they're my friends i mm-hmm. bet you're going to agree with me lee jenkins or chris ballard would come out to do something you know, and they'd be doing the same thing I do, interviewing the same people, getting to Kerr, getting to Curry, getting whatever they were doing. And it would come out and it was so goddamn good. Yeah. You know, it was so it was it was just made me feel, wow, this is the bar that I used to have to meet, you know, every like week. This is what these were the guys I was like writing against. And the, so still the level of journalism that comes out of there, it's a, just an inexplicable phenomenon how that continues to exist. But yet the importance of the magazine and the size of the magazine goes down. And I'm not sure. I mean, I guess we could go back to the roots of the Internet, but I'm not sure it's anything that SI did other than a, uh, you know, a temper of the times. But selfishly. Uh, obviously I, I was there at the right time and, and worked with so many incredible, uh, incredible people there. Yeah. I remember when I, uh, I remember when I was covering baseball early on and Michael Bamberger, I was talking to him about travel and he said, <laughs> he goes, I just think when I book travel for a first story, I want to be as comfortable on the road as I should be at home. So he'd be like. You just you just book whatever hotel you want. You know, just don't don't just book whatever hotel you want. And I'd be staying in like these two hundred and fifty, three hundred dollar night hotels. You, you know, like you were I and I came late. I got there in, in ninety six, but it was like you were kind of the man working at SI and walking into a locker room with a SI media credential and oh, when do you want to talk to him? And how much time do you need with him? Oh, Gary Sheffield, yeah, we'll get him for you, no problem. <laughs> and uh, I just feel like people don't realize younger writers coming up now don't realize the swag that came with being at SI back in the day. Well, they do when we, they do when we start talking about it, but I I always called it the, uh, I always called it the shutters phenomenon, you know, shutters out in, uh, in LA, you know, Mm -hmm. in Santa Monica, it it was a great Walter Yost hotel, (laughs) you know, the great photographer Walter told me about it. And I just loved shutters. Shutters wasn't, you know, it wasn't $600 back then, but it was, it was two fifty three hundred, you know, right. something like that. And I remember, I was working a story about sports movies, and I was in L.A. for like four or five days. And I remember getting a call from the uh, expense people when things were starting to change. And I was sitting in the middle of my shutter suite, and the person <laughs> said, "Well, you know, there's going to be no more shutters." And I said, "Well, I guess I better extend my stay here by a day." <laughs> yeah. you know? So. But you did. It did spoil you. You know, it did spoil you a little bit because I mean, I was a bargain rate guy when I first got to SI. I had come from newspapers, you know, where I 
two years before I got to SI, I mean, I was making $14,000 a year, which even in 1979 was not much money. You didn't even stay. I covered the state wrestling tournaments. At, you know, I, I went back and forth two times, a 320-mile 300, uh, round trip, you know, without staying in a hotel. So, you know, yeah, I had some adjustments to make when I got to uh, SI, but it kind of spoiled you because now that I'm uh, semi-retired, and a lot of times have to spend my own dime. Uh, you back at the Holiday Inn. Yeah. My wife says, well, we can just stay here. I go, no, I'm not staying here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going we're gonna to go up to 275, even though uh, we could get this for 175. No, we're going to go up to the uh, 275 because you, uh, you do get used to it. You are affected. You are affected by this, this, this sway of SI. Um, no doubt. Did you, did you when, um, back when, when, uh, Sports Illustrated famously ran the cover with Michael Jordan bag at Michael, uh, and then he wouldn't talk to the magazine for forever and ever. Uh, you were the NBA writer. How crippling was that to your job? Actually, I had just gotten off it. The one who had to go through it the most was Phil Taylor. Oh, yeah. Uh, I had had a couple of years when I was a scorecard editor, and one of the reasons I left there for a while, I had just done uh, – Shack attack, as you uh, mentioned, right. and magic was uh, Larry had retired. Michael had stepped away from the game. Magic, it turned out, was going through his HIV thing. It turned out he did not play anymore. And something had gone out of the game. And I, w- I did this book on Shaq, and I didn't want to just be the kind of guy, you know, geez, I did this first person book with Shaq, and now I'm Shaq's guy. And I just thought I needed to step away. And that's right when they did that headline. So I didn't see Michael. I know Phil Taylor had to go through it, a great, great Phil Taylor who followed me. And uh, I didn't. But then a couple of years later, I had to uh, go out and do something on Michael. And that's the first time I had seen him. And I found out for sure uh, that, no, he wouldn't. He used to talk to me. And then I got back on the beat at the last tail end when he was with the Wizards. And when I was researching the Dream Team book, you know, I called up his uh, person and I said, hey, tell uh, tell Michael it's got nothing to do with Sports Illustrated. They're not publishing it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm semi-retired and I didn't tell him I was still on the masthead, but I'm basically gone. And, you know, Michael, t- <laughs> Michael talked to me for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes. It was great. Do you think he was, so, too, was that an example of a guy being overly thin skinned or did he have reason, do you think, to be pissed? He had reason to be pissed, but. I think that at that time, his pride, his pride was hurt because nobody would ever tell him, you shouldn't be doing this. You know, you're bringing shame upon, you shouldn't be doing this. I think one of the things that was, you know, Michael had gradually was on this decline of making himself available. Mm-hmm. And I think partly um, this was a reason. This was just another thing that would keep him from talking that would keep, that would give him a little more uh, distance from giving interviews. And I I think that was part of it also, you know, uh, sports illustrated. I can't remember whether you were there then in 1999 had this turn of the century party. Yeah. And, you know, they basically got everybody there. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I remember I wrote a note to Michael and he basically showed up, I think, more because of Walter Yost, the photographer, that I think Walter called him or and they had done some book projects together. Mm-hmm. And he really respected Walter. And I remember going up to Michael at the thing that night and saying, hey, man, glad you could make it or something. He goes, yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't be here. I, I wasn't going to come, but I didn't want to disappoint Walter. Him and Walter had a lot of in other words, he was telling me he didn't come because of me. <laughs> you know, he wasn't there because of me, and he wasn't there to be a good guy. But that was an interesting night because I, I did see the guy's fame at that point. Because the two athletes, and I'm telling you, everybody was there. You're, mm-hmm. We're talking Nicholas Palmer. Uh, everybody, everybody came except uh, my, uh, except for uh, Spitz, uh, yep. the swimmer, yep. um, who wanted money. The two most charismatic characters there for the other athletes 
were Ali and Michael Jordan. Wow. They were the two guys that even Jack Nicholas and Palmer kind of, uh, you know, look like they were uh, subservient. Subservient's the wrong word, but look like they, you know, were lesser lights than Jordan and Ali. They were the stars. Is it weird to you that Michael Jordan is 54 years old? Like, does that sound weird or does that sound right? Well, when I tell you how, you know, when I'm 69, uh, that doesn't sound, it doesn't right. sound too weird. Uh, I guess, I guess a little bit. Yeah. When you think of it, you, you tend to think of athletes in there. One of the good things about covering the NBA and still being around was that the number of people that are still around, you know, Steve Kerr's one of the, uh, you know, busiest guys in the league. He's coaching this premier team. He's ducking in and out with just terrible injuries he's had. Well, I know knew Steve back when he was a bull and knew him when he was a San Antonio Spur. Right. Or I want so, you know, it's easy to get to a more same thing with uh Greg Popovich doesn't talk very much, but I really wanted to talk to him about the way the Warriors run their uh offense. So it's just easier if you've had a uh a relationship with somebody and in the NBA they seem to kind of respect those relationships that if you've been around for I'm sure it works you know the same way in any other sport but it was very uh fortunate for someone who's not on the beat anymore and who really hasn't been for a while it's very fortunate that you can feel reintegrated when you come back uh that not only psychologically makes you feel good but pragmatically you know you can get your uh you can get your work done easier than if you are coming in you know drifting in from uh another planet somewhere yeah that makes sense um i wasn't going to ask you about this story in fact i totally forgot about it and midway through this interview i was like wait a second um here's a lead to a story you're going to know as soon as i read the lead even though it's 31 years old uh there wasn't a happier young athlete in america than len bias on the afternoon of june 17th um you wrote a story i don't this wasn't your first cover story, was it, Len Bias? Death of a Dream? No, no, it wasn't my first cover story. No, I had written a couple bad. I had written maybe the worst cover story in the history of Sports Illustrated about Marvis Frazier, Joe Frazier's son. But that's, yeah. another, uh, that's another question. They wanted to put him on the cover. They wanted to put Marvis Frazier on the cover. I said, he's not very good. <laughs> and I don't think the story's very good. But, but I wanted to put him on the cover. But anyway... <laughs> Um, yeah, but I'll take that cover if you want to give it to me. Um, the Len Bias story, I remember, so I was, uh, I don't want to make you feel old. I was 14 when this came out and I remember, I mean, the death of Len Bias, who for people who don't know, was a, a star of Maryland and the number two pick in the, uh, 86 NBA draft by the Boston Celtics. And he died the day, the night of the draft, uh, I believe using from cocaine, um, that, I, I mean, there are stories in life that stick with you. Am I naive in thinking this is one that's probably stuck with you a little bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was – I remember sitting there and uh, and reading it, and I, I do remember it being a writing lesson because uh, there – I mean, it was so – the events were so dramatic. I mean, there's somebody – you were 14, you remember it. I still get – people still comment on that story. They still, every year, the anniversary of it, somebody brings it up. It was just some moment because it was just such a, you know, Len Bias. Whether or not it was the first time he took cocaine, who knows? Maybe it was the fourth, but it was so shocking because it became, it, it, it happened hours after this kid was going to come into the league. By all accounts, he was going to replace, basically, I mean, who knows whether he would replace Larry Bird, but he was going to be the next rung on that ladder. Larry was already starting to think about it. You know, Larry's back was already starting to hurt him. He was going to be, you know, he was going to be a superstar. And it just really hit people. And I remember sitting there, you know, writing this story in a hotel room down in Maryland and thinking, you know, the more dramatic the story the more dramatic the events of the story, the less you have to make it dramatic. Right. You know, and I just remember writing that first sentence, like uh, there wasn't a ha something like there wasn't a happier young man in America than. So you were sort of like once upon a time. And I tell my students this, it sounds corny, but if you can't, but try to make everything a story. Once upon a time, 
there was a something or other who had, you know, that you almost think of in this very simplistic thing. All right, you're going to tell me a story. You can't get bogged down by the emotion of it. You just got to start this story someplace. And I do, you know, very vividly remember starting it that way. And once you start with a simple and you understand you're going to tell this story, it's a little bit easier for everything to just uh, to just follow. It's not always that easy, but that is something to untangle it once in a while. You almost think about the once upon a time uh, structure. Is it? Um, it's funny over the years. So bias would have been fifty four, which is also mind boggling. Um, if you were that's alive. actually more mind boggling, <laughs> right? Because he's stuck in time as his twenty two year old stuck kid. in time. Um, whenever people talk about Len Bias or when he comes up, people say, "Oh, he would have been this." He would have been this. He would have been, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the Celtic. Is it possible he just would have been Craig Elo, <laughs> you know, or Tim Hardaway Jr.? Or do you feel like this guy was going to be a great, great player? I do. I do feel that he had every I mean, if you see the uh, if you see the clips of him and you, you get the uh, the ferocity of his competitiveness also. And he was a baller. I mean, he was a playground guy. He was a nut. He was a rat. You know, yeah. he wasn't going to uh, he wasn't going to mail it in. I mean, I just how do you know? Of course, you never know. But to me, I would fall on the the side of what everybody says. That to me is look look like what he was going to be. It's funny, you know, OK, why wasn't he the first pick? I mean, it just shows what was going on back then that still teams, you know, right up through Greg Oden and Kevin Durant. We still need the big center, yeah. you know, because Brad Darty was the first pick. And right. I just I remember thinking that no way <laughs> the game has just started to change too much. No way. Uh, Len Bias is going to be better than Brad Darty, But that's something we shall never know. And Brad Darty had a pretty good career. Oh, of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. You know, uh, you know, Sam Bowie didn't even have that pick before Michael Jordan didn't even have that bad a career beside uh, the injuries that befell him. Yeah, that was an interesting draft because uh, I I always thought I remember being a kid and loving the Nets, and they drafted Pearl Washington, and I thought we had the new Magic Johnson on our team, and that did not happen. <laughs> now he had about uh, his problem was he had about seven fewer inches and fifty more pounds. Than, yeah, yeah, I remember than Magic. Yeah. Um, well, Jack, listen, I uh, as always, I appreciate your insights and your help, and uh, you know, congratulations with the new book and. Uh, Thank you for taking the time and doing this. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you. You are Mr. Bumpers. I'm, a, I'm attempting to, uh, I think I'm going to send out a few bumpers uh, out there due to, your, uh, due to your example in this new form of social media communication. I, you know, I'm happy to be a role model in any, in any possible way. So if, if that means bumpers, I'm happy with it. Um, all right, good enough. All right, thanks, Jack. Thanks, Jeff. I want to thank today's guest, Jack McCallum, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can visit Jack's website at jackmccallum.net and follow him on Twitter at McCallum12. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on both iTunes and on bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. Music, again, is from the sizzling MC Whiteout. Thanks for joining me, and remember, keep writing.